Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Thanks, guys. Good morning. How are we? You guys doing good? All right, let's go. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we are this morning. We're just plodding our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians church. And we find ourselves in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at just a few verses today, verses 15 through 21. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the chair in front of you, that's on page 690. And I'd encourage you to, to follow along if maybe you forgot your Bible. Um, or if uh, you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one and use it and make it your own. And we'll get into that in just a second. But as you're finding that, let me just mention a couple things um, <clears throat> to, to let you know and encourage you about. First of all, we mentioned this last week, but I wanted to, to hit you guys with it as well in case some of you were not here last week. Uh, one of our elders, Don McKelvey, has been asked to serve as the interim pastor at a church up in Hamilton, Georgia, which is just north of here in Harris County, for those of you that are not from this area, uh, a small little church uh, called Ebenezer Baptist Church. They've been without a pastor for about a year or so, and Don um, is serving there on a probably a two to three month interim basis, and uh, he's still an elder here at this church, but you won't see him for the next couple months, and then, you know, we're going to pray together and, and, and um, just seek the Lord as to where he might lead. It may uh, Lord willing, develop into something a little bit more permanent or not, but um, just wanted you to know that Don is up there, and so although we, we hate to not have him kind of here on Sunday mornings with us, know that he is um, using uh, the gifts that God has given him up there with, at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and so encourage him. And by the way, if you, if you live up in that area, um, and you just maybe feel called to come alongside Don during that time, or even if it develops into something further, and that would be that would be a, a great mission for you, then, then we would encourage that. Uh, we, we, we love uh, the work of God, not just in our church, but in all, all churches that name Jesus as Lord. Um, so I wanted to just remind you about that. Also, we've got a couple, uh, at least one, I know, a young guy that just this Friday graduated from Ranger School. We may have others, but Paul Bingham is back there in the back. Here, see Paul, he's got his hand up there. He's got big swollen fingers. Yeah, yeah. From anybody... We got any other uh, new young U.S. Army Rangers that graduated maybe on Friday? Any of them? Well, okay, so if Paul is, breaks out a candy bar halfway through the service and starts eating it, uh, Army's been starving him, so just give him grace. Um, also, speaking of Army guys, uh, one of uh, our young guys that's a member of this church here and has been here for about a year or so has been serving us in Afghanistan for the past five months, and he's back on a two-week R&R, and then he goes back to Afghanistan um, in a couple of days for another seven months, and he's my uh, brother from another mother, a, fe a fellow Italian-American, A.J. Bastone. Where's A.J.? Is A.J. here? There's A.J. right there. Stand up, A.J. Yeah. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Thanks, brother. A.J., we're proud of you, man. Thanks for your service. I tell you, I was talking to A.J. last week, and just the Lord is doing great things in his life. Put him with some good brothers there in, this, in the midst of dangerous situation. You guys have seen what's been happening in Afghanistan. He's going right back into that um, in a week or so. And so let's pray for A.J. and all of our troops there. Very grateful um, for you. And then, as you, I'm sure you've been watching the news the last couple of days, in just a moment as we center our hearts on this scripture, 
We want to remember these folks in, in Indiana and in Kentucky and Ohio that have been devastated by this tornado. So let's pray for them and pray that the Lord uh, in his sweet providence would somehow work even these terrible events for, for the good of his people. And so um, let's remember them as, as, we, uh, as we pray in just a moment. But before I do that, let me just kind of orient us to our text, and, um, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Okay, now, I, I sometimes um, have been known to poke fun at little sermon points that all start with the same letter. I, d- I don't have that today, by the way, and I'm looking at one of my friends there who likes, who knows where I'm coming from on that. I don't have a bunch of points, but, but usually, I do actually try and, I do try and kind of make them shorter sort of bullet points. And I tried this week, I tried, but they just came out almost in paragraph form. And so I've got kind of three summary statements, kind of mini paragraphs, that we're going to look at here as we work through this text. And I, I wanted them to all sort of be short and a little, it just it didn't happen, okay? And, and so, so, so that's what we're going to do today. But, but here's the deal as we look at these six or seven verses, verses 15 through 21, they're, they're kind of the cap or the summary of Paul's argument that he's been making in chapters 4 and 5. And and so if you remember, kind of the flow or the structure of the letter of Ephesians is that the first three, especially the first two chapters of Ephesians, have been what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, the truth of the gospel, something that we didn't contribute to, that before we were even on the scene, that God has done this in Christ for us. And then he has made us alive by the power of the gospel. And then the rest of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are all about then how that should flesh out and how that should look in the lives of Christians. We're actually called to live a certain way. And in chapters 4 and 5 in particular, he's been making this point about how we're to put off particular behaviors and sins that characterized our life before we came to Christ and how we're now to make this conscious decision to put on Christ and live in a particular way for him. And and so he's going to transition after this paragraph that we'll look at today into how submission works out in the life of a Christian. And then chapter 6 is about spiritual warfare. But he's kind of ending this argument right now that he's been making for these past few chapters about how about we're putting off and putting on. And, And the point he's making is that we can do this. It's not like God saves us. And then sort of leaves us to ourselves to figure out how to actually live for him. But he not only gives us the righteousness of Christ, but he, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's what we're going to be thinking about today. Well, let me pray and then, then um, well, let me read. Let me read the scripture and then we'll pray and then we'll just, we'll work our way back through it. Verse 15, Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come now to this text, we, we pause to just give you thanks for this morning, for crisp, 
cool air for life and breath and just the beautiful privilege to gather. Thank you for these young men in the army, these, for Paul getting through ranger school. I know we've got a bunch of young guys at this church that are right now just beginning ranger school and in their second week of it. And, and in a situation where the stakes are much higher, we have men and women from this country and from this church serving us in dangerous places. Thank you for AJ and his, his service to us. Thank you for Scott Tuttle and Amy Stefanetta and others from this church who at various times have been over there and will go over there again. Pray that you'd keep AJ safe as he goes back for these final seven months. Lord, we do, we do our hearts go out to these people in the Midwest and South and Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana and we pray, Lord, for the witness of the gospel to rise up in the midst of the ashes and the rubble of some of these towns that have been so devastated. Lord, would you bring good out of destruction? Would you bring hope where there is despair? And Lord, now as we turn our attention to this passage from Ephesians, Lord, make it more than just a, another little few verses that we're getting to as we work through Ephesians. Help us see the glory and the goodness and the beauty of living together for Christ. I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, whether they realize it or not. And certainly with a group this size, there are people that are not yet trusting in Jesus, not yet truly your children. Lord, would you be so kind as to do the greatest miracle of all and cause a heart that was dead to come alive in Christ so that they can see and trust in Jesus and that all of our hearts would be seized with affection for Jesus. Help us now as we think on these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, point or slash paragraph number one. <laughs> we are called to live careful, Christ-centered lives in the midst of this present evil age. That's what I think Paul is saying in these first few verses of this passage that we're looking at today. We are called, as Christians, to live Christ-centered lives in the midst of this present evil age. Look at what he says there in, in uh, verse 16. He says that the days are evil. And as a result of that, we're we are to be thoughtful. We're to be careful about how we actually walk out this Christ life. We're, this Christ life. We're supposed to be wise and not unwise. Do you realize, I've, I've been mentioning this a lot recently, that there's, a lot of people are sort of lulled into sleep that there's a sort of spiritual neutrality. You know, I think a lot of that exists kind of in our region. It's sort of a Christianized region where maybe the general morality of public culture is still slanting a little bit more towards Christianity than maybe other parts of the country. And I think what that can do is lull us to sleep and think that maybe kind of subconsciously there's three categories. There's people that are really serious about being Christians. And then there are people that are obviously not. And then there's kind of this large sort of group of independents that are in the middle. And they're not bad people, but they're not really following Jesus or trusting in him. But Certainly they're not, you know, certainly they're not really 
you know, certainly they're going to be okay in the end, right? And we just sort of lull ourselves to sleep that there's this sort of spiritual Switzerland, you know, that's kind of neutral. It's like in the middle of Europe, and, you know, the Germans won't ever go there, and it's, it'll be fine. And if you, you know, you can, you can open up a bank account there, and as long as you're kind of tethered to some sort of spiritual neutrality, it'll pretty much be okay, friends. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth and nothing could be further from the biblical witness. Now, there are people who have trusted in Christ and are alive in the gospel and because of what Jesus has done, and there are people who are still dead in their sins. And granted, there are people that are in the process of becoming alive and it seems like God is stirring their hearts, but, but the days are evil. Not just our hearts dead or alive, but the days are evil. This is what Paul writes in another letter to another church in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. He says that Jesus gave, him up, gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. In fact, we don't even need to go outside of, of Ephesians to, to even hear more about what Paul thinks and what the Holy Spirit through Paul thinks about our world when we look at just even Ephesians 2 where it says in Ephesians 2 verse 2 or let me just start with 1 it says and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in other words you're either dead or alive and then in verse 2 it says in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience so clearly there Paul is saying that in a measured sort of sense still under the sovereignty of God the, the evil one, our enemy, the devil, has a certain sort of reign over our culture and this world. And this is an evil age. And as a result of that, he tells us that we should not be foolish, that we shouldn't be unwise, but that we should be wise, understanding that these days are evil. And then he, he starts, starts to now direct us to this, this imperative, this, this exhortation to understand what the Lord's will is. That's in verse 17. I'll read it again. It says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now what does that mean, understand what the will of the Lord is? Now I think we have to think about that phrase in context. Because I think a lot of times, this is a perfect example, where Christians will take a one particular verse, and we will, we will parachute down into that one particular verse, and we will read that verse only sort of in the context of personal application without looking at it in the view of everything that goes before it and preceding it. And so a lot of times I think we make the mistake of coming down into a verse like verse 18 and thinking that, okay, I am now, I have this mandate by God. And what this verse is saying to me exactly is that I need to find out what God's sort of personal will is for me in my life pertaining to all of my decisions. Now, now certainly, don't, don't misunderstand me. I think that understanding what the will of the Lord is in our life includes that type of sort of personal consideration. But I don't think that's all of what is going on here. What I think Paul is speaking about is in context of God's will. And we can't detach God's will from the global, cosmic universal saving purposes of his saving his people through Christ for his glory. And, and so I think we need to approach even just this admonition to understand what the will of the Lord is in the context of the sense that God's great and glorious will is to display his glory 
through saving a lost and rebellious people for himself. And so let's, let's just start off the discussion about what is God's will for our lives by viewing it through the lens of God's saving purposes in Christ. That there's a much bigger and grander storyline going on here rather than just what, what job I take or what decision I make or what girl I marry or what college I go to or whether I make yes or no. Because see, what happens, I think, is that when we only view this, this, this exhortation to understand the will of the Lord through the prism of kind of personal, personal direction, is, is we kind of, I used to grow up in the summertime, in late 70s, early 80s, watching Bob Barker, the showcase showdown. You know, the price is right. And I just, you know, just, that's what I did all day long. Me and my brother, we'd go out and play ball, and then we'd come in and, come on down, and da 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 come on down. Everybody acting crazy, dressing up, trying to get Bob Barker's attention. He always had the coolest mic. It was this long, skinny thing. Remember that? Turned out he was a little kooky. But anyway, they would always, you know, when you get down to it, the winners would have this sort of showcase showdown, right? And you'd bid and you'd, you'd kind of choose between door number one or door number two, right? And inevitably there was, you know, just some spoof. There was some clunk thing or whatever, or, you know, some gag gift behind one of the doors. And behind the other door, if you chose it correctly, you know, it was this great, it was a vacation to, you know, the Caribbean or a new car. You know, you'd go crazy. And I think a lot of Christians approach finding and discovering God's will for their lives through the prism of kind of a door number one, door number two. As if the Trinity is up there in heaven saying, come on down. And you bid, you kind of get through the bidding process. You've proven yourself to be a pretty level-headed guy. And now it's that final moment when you, you need to make the decision about whether to take this job or to go to this school or to do this thing. And it's like the showcase showdown, right? And it's now it's just the fate of Western civilization hangs upon whether or not I make the right decision. Everything, now my future, everything. And it's, you know that music when they make the bad decision and you choose door number one, I'm going to go to that school or I'm going to take this job. Right? That's the pressure we feel. And do you see what happens when we do that, friends, is we, we when, when we, enter into this sentence and this exhortation to understand what the will of the Lord is through solely personal application for specific decisions. We jettison, like we, we cut off the sovereignty and the providence of God. We cut out the whole aspect of God's sovereign care for his people. We, we forget verses like Ephesians 1, verse 11 that we went through a few weeks ago where it says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, even my less than ideal decisions. We forget about Romans 8, the thing that we love to put on t-shirts and coffee mugs. Romans 8, 28, somewhere you got a shirt with this verse on it. I know you do. And he works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so, so do you realize... That when we approach understanding God's will through the prism of God's great and glorious saving purposes and his utter and exhaustive providence and good care for his people, do you see how that sort of releases us from this sort of man-centered pressure, right? So I'm not saying don't think about who you're, you're going to marry. I don't, don't roll the dice and say, you'll do. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a girl by a toe. No, <laughs> think about it. Get good counsel, surround yourself with, with 
with believers and but let's not zero down the greatness of our God down to showcase showdown. Th- th- here's 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 some some guidance. How should we approach understanding God's will in personal and specific decisions? Because, friends, I am not saying that God doesn't want us to have his personal and specific sort of thoughts and and, and, and momentum and and, and pushing towards one thing or another. But here's just some guidelines. This This is not scripture. This is just Brad's thoughts. Number one is know the scriptures. Like Immerse yourself in the word of God. Reynolds mentioned it. I mean, it was so clear this morning that, we just need, we need the Bible. No, make the Bible part of your life. Give yourself to it. To be in community with other Christians. Right? Don't just attend church with five or 600 other people. Actually be in community. People know your life. Do you have people that you're with that can pray for you, that can help you work through some of these personal and specific decisions? Three would be to seek wise counsel from people that have gone before you. And so if you're a young guy in your 20s, it would be better for you not to just get advice from young guys in their 20s because young guys in their 20s are still figuring out how to set their alarm clocks. And it would be really good if you got the advice from somebody over the age of 40 who's, I don't know, paid a mortgage and knows how to set their alarm clock. That'd be, that'd be great. And by the way, it would be great also if you're over 50 or 60 to occasionally hang around younger people because younger people tend to be a little bit more optimistic and, and excited about life, whereas when we get older, we get a little grumpy and legalistic and pessimistic. We kind of, we have to fight against that chicken little sort of tug in all of us, you know? I think once you get over 40, it's just like your natural bent is that the sky is falling. And it's good to get around them. I mean, I'm not saying ask the advice of a 20-year-old. I'm just saying be around them, Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So seek, seek wise counsel. And, pray, and then pray, like actually pray. Pray for wisdom. James 1. James 1, uh, verse 3, 4, somewhere around in there, it says that, that we can ask God. If you, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it, and he will give it to us generously without finding fault. God, help me. In the context of community, God, help me think about this decision. And then I think the, the next sort of just practical step is then at, at some point actually do something. Don't be stagnated or frozen by fear. Don't be frozen by, the, by the, the door number two that might not be the perfect will of God for you. Friends, do you realize how sort of, do you realize how when we think along those terms, we shrink the universe down into, into God being sort of beholden to our good decisions? And so, so actually do something. Like make a decision. Don't linger forever. And then finally, just another sort of practical step in how we should understand God's will in personal and specific decisions is trust in our good and sovereign God. Trust in our good and sovereign God. And if you find out that later on you made a decision that maybe wasn't quite optimal, well, you never know that where the detours that God took you on that may, may end up having served his purposes. I mean, friends, do you realize that the apostle Paul had a plan to spread the gospel in the Roman Empire? And his plan was interrupted by getting thrown into prison on several occasions. And in one instance, in fact, we're reading a letter that was written in prison. Ephesians was written from prison. And in another instance in Philippians, he writes a letter to this church at Philippi while he's in prison which I would call sort of an interruption on what I would consider to be the perfect will of God for my life and spreading the gospel freely in the Roman Empire. But he now says, aha, oh, I realize now that God sent me here to make much of himself because guess what happens? I get to now preach the gospel to these Roman guards. 
And so, so he, he rejoices even in the detours, right? I mean, come on, we have a God that does innumerable things that we can't even imagine, innumerable rabbit trails and ripple effects and unseen things. I mean, there are always innumerable things going on behind the scene that we cannot see for every one or two things that we can see. And so as we make decisions and we find out maybe on the surface that in the temporary they seem to be less than ideal in the retrospect, friends, we can trust a good and sovereign God who loves his children and knows how to take care of them. Well, let's keep going on. That's some thoughts about understanding the will of the Lord. And I think as we look at this, before we move on to verse 18, as we sort of let this admonition to think about walking carefully and wise and unwise, and then there's that verse 17, do not be foolish. In fact, one translation says, don't be stupid, but understand the will of the Lord. I don't think that this means that we need to live scared you know, like an athlete, like a, like a quarterback who's, you know, scared that he's going to get benched and it just seems like he's short-arming every pass. Or, or you know, maybe a shooter in basketball who, who, who misses a shot and he always looks over to the bench like he's going to get pulled out of the game. I don't think that's how we have to live. But looking at this, when we walk carefully, but we walk in this sort of freedom because we know that there's a good and sovereign God who is our Father, who is superintending even our less than optimal decisions, we can approach life with a sort of freedom. And I think what these few verses are saying is that basically, friends, there's two ways to live. There's the way of folly and foolishness, self-centeredness, living like an island, like you're on an island, and there's this way of wisdom. So here's the question now as we transition to verse 18. I hope you're feeling a little bit of despair because I, I am when I just think about admonitions like this to walk carefully. How, how, I mean, how can we do this? Come on. How can we do this? I, I think the commands of God to do these things are intended to bring us to a point of despair so that we will realize we can't do this without God. Right? Who can walk carefully? Who can be wise? Who can do this? Who can understand the will of the Lord on their own? And then just like out of nowhere, verse 18 comes in and just fills us with encouragement. And this is what he says in verse 18. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Listen to these words now. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, if, again, this is a verse that we sort of hunker down in, we parachute down in, and I think a lot of times this verse is used a little bit out of context, although it certainly applies to this. This is just kind of one of those verses that maybe some fundamentalist preacher used to beat you over the head. No, get drunk! You know? <laughs> well, I, I, true. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't want to gloss over that. Like, that's not what's one of the things that's being said there. But, but I think if upon further inspection, because it does kind of seem like a sort of random out of nowhere, right? You know, it seems like he's talking about you know, all these things, these behaviors. We're supposed to live for the Lord. And then there's this sort of real, sort of introspective, uh, a couple sentences before, like, be wise. Think about God's will. And it almost seems like out of nowhere he's saying, and don't get drunk. And then be filled by the Spirit. And it's not, I don't think it's so much out of place here because I think what he's doing is he's contrasting, again, just this idea of give yourself over to the influence of the beauty of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so in his mind, it's like the first sort of word picture that comes to Paul's mind is when he thinks about influence. He thinks about things that can lead us into destructive influence. He calls it debauchery. And so I'm sure to some degree drunkenness was a problem in Ephesus like it's a problem in our day. But 
But he's contrasting here this idea of we're called to be people that are filled with and, and under the influence. He caps off the argument that he's been making in Ephesians 4 with this incredible sense of encouragement that, look, I'm calling you to do all of these things and not do these things, but you're not alone in this. You can do this as you're filled with the Spirit. And that brings us to point number two, and this really is more of a point, not a paragraph. We really can live this way as we are filled with the Spirit of God. We really can live this way. Like if, if God has done what He has said He has done for us in the gospel that we've been reading about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, then we really can live this way. Like He gives what He commands. That's what St. Augustine, the early church father, said. He said, God, command what you will and grant what you command. He gives us the very thing that he requires of us, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. This is part of the promise of the gospel. So, so I want you to, to not misunderstand the gospel. The gospel is not just the explanation of the finished work of Christ, as glorious as that is. And what I mean by that is that Clearly, the Bible says that we have rebelled against God. Everyone has. That's the state of every human being born into this world, separated from God at birth by our own rebellion. We inherit a sin nature from our parents, and then as we grow, we, we grow up in line with that sin nature. Sometimes our sin is more public and obvious, and sometimes our sin is more private and under the ground. But all of us have rebelled against God whether the consequences are obvious or whether they're underground. And that puts us, in a, the Bible says, in a place of being an enemy with God. And in response to human rebellion and sin, God comes in the form of His Son, Jesus, in the flesh, to live the perfect life. Where we have rebelled, He obeys. And He, he is the perfect God-man, fully God and fully man, which is a mystery that we can't fully understand until we stand before Him someday. He comes and He lives a life of complete obedience storing up righteousness, fulfilling the law. And then he willingly lays down his life on the cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice, as a wrath-absorbing substitute for the sin of all those that will ever turn and trust in Jesus and his work and not our own work to make ourselves right. Friends, here's the issue. We, we are created by a holy and righteous God, and we will meet that God someday. And our only hope of that meeting going well, of us having anything to plead our case for ourselves with, is not in anything that we have done, no matter how relatively better we've been than any other human being next to us. But our only hope in that going well is in what Jesus has done, satisfying God's wrath for us and God's justice. But friends, don't, here's what I'm saying. Don't mistake that just that as beautiful and glorious as that is, that's, that's the atonement. That's when Jesus makes us right by his work on the cross. But don't think that that's all that is offered in the gospel. Jesus rises again in victory over sin and death. He gives us his righteousness and he gives us his spirit. He actually indwells us with the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so, so now, as Ephesians says in Ephesians 1, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
In Ephesians 2, it says that we have access to God by this Spirit. And then in Romans chapter 8, let me, let me read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. It'll be up on the screen. Don't worry about flipping there. Now we actually have the Spirit of God in us, okay? And so, so I want you to understand what happens in the gospel when we become Christians. Not only is there just sort of this distant exchange of the forgiveness of sins, but now actually God comes to take residence in us, and we have God's Spirit living in us. Listen to this, Romans 8, verse 12. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14. Listen to this now. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So what he's saying there is you didn't just get this one-time hit of the forgiveness of sins, and then he went back to heaven, and now he kind of leaves you to yourself to maybe drift back into doubt and fear. No, he actually indwells you. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so what I'm trying to point out here, friends, is that, is that salvation and the gospel is not just this sort of transaction, and then, and then God kind of goes back and we're, we're sort of left to figure it out for ourselves. But no, the, actual, the Spirit of God, God's presence himself indwells us. And we are now filled with the Spirit. And what Paul is saying is that we're, we're to continue to be filled, to sort of stand under this pouring out of God's Spirit in our life daily. I want to kind of push against a little bit, and I think some of us maybe have come from wings of the church, slivers of the church that love Jesus, that speak about this as being a sort of second one-time experience where maybe you receive a spiritual gift, like speaking in tongues or some special power. And, And so there's this idea where you get saved, and then you have to seek this second experience to get filled to sort of overflowing. And that is evidenced by, you know, maybe some outward expression or some gift. And friends, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. And I certainly don't think that was, is, is what this verse teaches. I think that all Christians, when they trust in Christ, we, we came alive by the Spirit. We can't trust in Christ apart from the Spirit bringing life to us. And so every Christian, like everybody in this room that is trusted in Christ, has the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying here is just continue to be filled daily with that. In fact, the Greek verb that we get the English word filled from is is in the tense of present imperative. So it's not a one-time deal, but it's daily. Give yourself over to continually be led by the Spirit of God. And friends, how do you do that? How do you daily be filled with the Spirit? Friends, this is not rocket science. Like if this was, if this was high-level quantum physics, man, we would be hopeless. This is, this, is, this is like airborne school, man. You know airborne school in the Army is three weeks, it, you know, it's three hours of training jammed into three weeks, right? All you got to do in airborne school is stand up, hook up, shuffle to the door, Step right out and count to four, and the parachute opens. It is not rocket science, but they take three weeks to teach soldiers how to do it because this just in, every now and again, you get a little 18-year-old soldier that didn't do so good on his ASVAB tests, and he doesn't have a whole lot going for him, and he's airborne, and he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, right? And we're all kind of like that 
not super sharp private. Man, if this was, if being filled with the Spirit was like super complicated, we'd all be in trouble, man. If there were little religious things we had to do or special books that we had to read or special prayers that we had to chant or little things or little juice cards that we had to lay down on the table so that God was, was, was now obligated to act, friends, we'd all be in trouble and none of us could be filled with the Spirit. But the message is, be filled with the Spirit. Be who you already are. So give yourself to the Bible. Hang around with other Christians and make a decision to give yourself to God. That's it. Stand up, hook up, shuffle to the door. Step right out and count to four. That's what it is. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, friends. Let's not overcomplicate it and get a tiered level of Christianity. It's, it's just as simple as that. Is it easy? No. Is it simple? Yes. And friends, that's a, that's a good summary of the Christian life. We really can live this way as we are led by the Spirit of God. Which brings us now to point slash paragraph number three. And this really is almost a paragraph. Couldn't shorten it. Tried to. Couldn't do it. When we are filled and led by the Holy Spirit... It flows out of us to build up and encourage the church, making us a clearer picture of the gospel to an onlooking world. So, so when we do this, when we make this simple decision to, to live this way as we're empowered by the gospel, now having Christ's righteousness imputed to us, doing life together with other Christians, being filled by the Spirit as we just give ourselves daily to walking in His ways and not our own. And we know we can do this because He's given us Himself. When we are filled and led by the Holy Spirit, it now is to flow out, to spill out, to bubble out of us, to build up and encourage the church, which is the group of people in this room and those that trust in Jesus all across the world, making us specifically now a clearer picture of the gospel to an onlooking world. And he mentions four ways that this should bubble out of us, that this should happen in our lives. He mentions, there, let's read it again in verse 19, 20, and 21. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, so we see that sort of speaking to one another, singing to one another, singing and me making melody to the Lord with your heart. So speaking to God, singing to God. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the third one, giving thanks to God in every situation through Jesus. And then the fourth one, verse 21, then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, and let's stop and do a little bit of work with this before we in this and receive communion together. There's four things that are mentioned here. Two things, kind of things that we address, addressing God and addressing one another. And then there's two things where we're, there's this attitude of the heart where we're submitting to God and then submitting, or being thankful to God and then submitting to one another. And I think that if we just read this and we don't think deeply about it, it can create a sort of kind of unrealistic and almost like a parody of the Christian life. I mean, think about it. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, in one sense, we can just sort of look at this and say, well, you know, we all kind of were singing together to the Lord, but, I mean, when was the last time somebody kind of hovered over you singing a psalm? That'd be a little freaky, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> what are you doing, dude? It's a little awkward, man. But, I mean, this... Think about it. This is, the Bible calls us to, to gather together and to not just sing to God, but to sing to one another. There's this, 
I want us to get this picture, this real practical, not this strange picture, but this real sort of practical picture of, picture this community of people who have all been in the ditch of their own personal sin, dead, unable to live for God. And God, by the beauty and the power and the kindness of his gospel, through the power of his Holy Spirit, comes into a person. He makes them alive by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that life, he gives them faith so that they can see and trust in Jesus. And then he takes that individual and he grafts that person together with a community of people called a local church. And then together, that group of people now have this sort of orientation towards God and towards one another to be gracious truth speakers to one another. Now, now the heartbeat of their life is to, to, to just really overflow with joy, even to sing to one another and to continually be speaking God's words to one another so that collectively we're all continually reminded because remember, friends, the days are evil, right? There are so many competing messages and we need Like we need to hear the true speaking songs and words of other Christians around us to reorient us and remind us daily afresh of who God is and what he has done. And here's the deal. These aren't just all happy songs, right? I mean, it's not just, you know, not just cheer me up. It's Sunday morning. Let's rev it up songs. I mean, look at at just the Hebrew songbook, which we call Psalms. There's 150 of them. A bunch of them are are songs of lament, right? So let me just read one. When's the last time we read something, or when's the last time we sang something like this to each other? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so, so how would we sing that to each other? Maybe, maybe a brother or sister is sick and down, and they're in the hospital, and they've gone through some despair, and I mean, what a beautiful thing about this. This is so foreign to us that it feels strange, but just think about how raw and beautiful it would be if, if a person was down and out and some tragedy happened in their life and their community group gathered around them. And not because anybody's particularly vocally gifted or musical, but they just sort of read or even sang, how long, oh Lord? I mean, just identifying with human pain and suffering. Like, right? How, who among us has not felt that way? Lord, where are you? And, and that that emotion finds itself in a psalm which is in our Bible. I mean, how amazing is that, that God is so acquainted with our grief that he would inspire one of his writers to write a psalm that touches the very nerve of human pain and identifies with it. And how, how beautiful of a witness to our hearts and an encouragement would it be if we would, when we gather around, we don't throw out pithy little statements like, oh, it's going to be okay, but we we. Get in one another's pain and say, yeah, brother, I don't know how long, how long, like how long will God not, is he even listening? 
And then in the middle of that psalm that seems so depressing, it's like the attention turns. Oh, no, no, no. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So regardless of the temporal situation, I know that God is good. Right? I mean, I mean we're called to sing, to speak words of raw reality like that to each other. All right, what, what about this one? That's like songs of lament. Well, what about Psalm 40? I got a couple of them. Buckle up. Psalm 40. Look at this. Psalm 40. This is good. Verse 11. When's the last time we sang something like this to each other? Psalm 40, verse 11. This is a song set to music, which was part of worship. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Listen to verse 12. For evil, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Set that to music. My sin is so great. It outnumbers the hairs of my head. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, contrast that with the some of the silly little things. I'm, I, and by the way, we, we try not to sing silly songs here. We, we try and sing robust, God-centered, biblical songs. And we do sing songs that, that I think touch the reality of life. And then in Psalm 69, get a hold of this just real quickly. Psalm 69, I mean, where we got the, where are you, God? I'm a worm and my sins outnumber the hairs of my head. And then there's Psalm 69 which is what's called an imprecatory psalm, meaning that the psalmist is praying down God's judgment on his enemies. Psalm 69, verse 24, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. Verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. I mean, I'm not saying every song needs to be like that, but friends, what I'm saying is, is that when God is calling us as a community to be truth speakers and truth singers to one another, he's not calling us to detach ourselves from the reality of the circumstance, but to actually get into it and point one another towards a good and gracious sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Friends, just imagine with me for a moment what that would look like in the context of a local church in Columbus, Georgia in 2012. A bunch of people who do more than just come occasionally on a Sunday morning to have some helpful tips sort of downloaded into their life. But a group of people whose lives are marked by triumph and tragedy, joy and sorrow, who walk together in brutal spiritual honesty, but with this sort of redeeming eternal hope because, man, we're in this together and we're singing and speaking God's saturated songs and life to each other where we are continually pointing each other back to the goodness and the sufficiency of God, our creator. Friends, just imagine with me what that looks like and just how beautiful that is to an onlooking world, man. How beautiful and how irresistible that is and how how this present evil age needs that. So, so that's what we're to do. We're to sing to God and to one another these raw, rugged, beautiful words. 
We're to be, he says, thankful to God. Always. For everything. Through Jesus to the Father. Everything? Yeah. Lord, thank you. Thank you for that illness. And as even we're approaching that sickness, we can pray that God is, might be fit to cure us of that thing. Thank you for that very difficult trial. Because in that trial, Lord, you were kind enough to a little bit more in my life. As J.I. Packer, one of my heroes of the faith, says, detach my hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. Do you see how, how we can thank God even for trial and tragedy? Because when we get on the other side of it, we can look how that has loosened our death grip on this dying world, right? And do you see how that's not a detached, silly, sort of unrealistic thankfulness like, well, Lord, thank you for that thing. I'm just going to count it a blessing and blah, blah, blah. And it's not this fake hallway Christianity. I mean, it's this real, rugged, raw Christianity where we are in grips and have a hold on the good providence of God and we don't treat these 80 years like that's all that there is. And it's a, it's a type of mentality and, it's, and being part of a culture where we can truly thank God for everything because we know that he's good, we know that he's our father, and we know that ultimately forever and ever we shall be with him. And in view of that, when we look at life through that lens, friends, we can realize that God does good to his people and we can thank him for it. And then he ends with this line that we will pick up next week when he talks about submitting to one another. And then he rolls out, which we'll read next week and into Ephesians 6, three different aspects of what submission looks like, three different sort of case studies of what submission looks like in the life of a Christian. First in marriage, second in parenting, and then in the workplace. And we'll cover those in the coming weeks. Some thoughts of application before we conclude. You're a young single person. Maybe you're a young soldier in the army. Maybe you are a young college student. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Your life has pretty much been marked by relative ease. There has not been much obvious consequence to your sin. Seems like God's getting a little bit of a hold of you and you're here now. And what are you to do with this? Ah, oh, friends, hear the words of Paul. Walk carefully, not scared, not gripped by legalism, but your life is bigger than just your own pleasure. Think about how you live. Don't be a fool. Be wise in Christ, and you can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the word, and by the people that God has given you around you. You need people in your life to speak truth to you. Maybe you're a married couple raising kids and all of the wisdom that you thought you had before you started to have kids is now starting to fall apart. Isn't it kind of neat to see young couples that just get married and they kind of, ah, when I get kids, yeah, check back with me in about 10 years or homeboy. <laughs> and life have a way of just sort of humbling you, doesn't it? 
Man, it's, it's beat some humility into me. Maybe you're a young couple with kids and, and you're just carting those kids off to thing, to thing, to thing. Or maybe you're not as vigilant as, as maybe you should be about what they're being exposed to. Friends, I'm not here to say that we should hunker down in a bunker and live scared, but we as parents should think wisely and carefully about the fact that our kids are growing up in a present evil age. And although the enemy may not jump out from behind the rock with a red suit on and a pitchfork saying this is evil, it will come in seductive and less than obvious ways. It'll come through the portal of teen culture. It'll come through the portal of some fashion. It'll come through something. And as parents, we need to wisely help our children navigate through this evil age speaking words of life and truth to them so that their affections are not seized by this evil age. Friends, that is hard work, and it cannot be done alone. We need each other to help one another parent. That's why baby dedications are so important when we pray for a family raising a child. Maybe you're an older, empty nester. And as I have mentioned earlier in this message, your, your tendency is to just kind of get sour and pessimistic. There's a whole group of people around you that need you and need your wisdom, but they need your winsome, optimistic, God-saturated wisdom. They don't need your recollections of how things used to be because that's not how things are. And by the way, the way things, they were just as jacked up 20 years ago as they are today. Just a little clue. It's all been going downhill since Genesis chapter 3, just so you know. All right? And God, there's just been these simultaneous two trajectories. There's been further decadence of further sin, further debauchery of humanity, and then just progression of glory of God. So there's just been two trajectories of humanity, those that are perishing and those that are being renewed, friends. Right? It's... It's all been pretty messed up. Can, can, you, can your heart just sort of be detached about your preference or your, your whatever? And can you, can you give your heart an optimism and joy and be a winsome, wisdom, wise person that pours out their life to somebody that needs truth-speaking, redemptive truth-speaking? And finally, us as a church. I touched on it just a second ago, but just picture this community that's it's displayed, it's spoken of in these verses. A group of people who have been saved and brought to life by Jesus and who are, who are speaking honest and sincere, God-saturated words to one another. And what that looks like to an onlooking world and how satisfying that is to be a part of. Like how satisfying. There is no pleasure outside of that that's even, that even approaches it. That's the type of church that God is calling us to be. How beautiful is that? Let's go after that. Let's be spirit-filled people in a spirit-filled church, making much of Jesus, humbly walking together for his glory and not ours. Well, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion together. If you're a believer in Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, you are welcome to come to this table and receive communion with us. If you've never been 
part of a communion service and you're not a Christian. This really is a family meal. It's for people that have trusted in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. They're little pieces of bread or just little, just little reminders of this great fact that Jesus died on the cross for us, that his body was broken. That's what the bread represents, his broken body. And so as we take that bread, we're remembering that Jesus died for us. The little cups of juice signify his blood that was spilled for us to make us clean, to make us right, to fill us with his presence. And so if you're not a Christian, you really shouldn't participate in this meal. This is something that Christians do. If you, if right now you're not a Christian and you realize that you're not and God is stirring your heart, friends, you don't need to go through a class. You don't need to go through a big explanation. Trust, turn from trusting in yourself and turn and trust in Jesus even now. Right now, right? Trust in Jesus even now. Believe in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and say, Jesus, I trust in what you have done for me. Do that even now. And friends, if, you, if that's the cry of your heart, then I think that's evidence that God is, is, is right now giving you a new heart so that you can see him and trust in him. Do that now. And if you do that now, right now you can receive this, this meal with us. And as we receive these elements, we're remembering what Jesus has done and examining our lives in light of that. Let's do that together as a faith family. Let me pray, and then we'll receive. Father, as we come now to your table, help us. Help us to examine our lives in light of your gospel. Thank you for these words from Paul. I pray that we would be spirit-filled people and spirit-filled community, walking in a raw and honest way together for your glory and for our joy. Nothing's more satisfying than that, Lord. Nothing is more satisfying. Help us move closer to that today. In Jesus' name, amen.